I want you to stop looking at things like page views and I want you to look at user behavior instead. Because people are usually sitting on a gold mine of actual good customers who are already coming to the website, but they aren't converting because you are doing a bad job of talking to them or a bad job of showing them what they actually you know, want to see. Welcome to the Marketing Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. Join your host, Dots Oyobulu, as he learns from CMOs, agency leaders, and business leaders about the state of performance marketing, plus insights on strategies, campaigns, and intelligence for commercial impact. Connect the dots and enjoy the latest episode. This episode is brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. If you're a business needing content promotion, podcast campaign production, or are looking to build effective B2B marketing strategies, Dots is here to offer you ultimate marketing leadership and expertise. Find out more at www.dotslovesmarketing.com. Hi, marketers. This is Dots, and welcome to the Marketing Leadership Podcast. With me here is Dana Timaso, president and partner at Kickpoint and one of the leading global marketing influencers, where we will be talking about marketing intelligence strategies for analytical success. I know you guys are ready, so let's get it. Dana, the great Dana, it's good to have you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I know you, of course, but our audiences don't. So do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your role, and how you've got into where you are right now? Yeah, well, that's the story. I'll start with <laughs> my, so yeah, I'm president and partner at Kickpoint, which is a digital marketing agency. We're headquartered in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, but I live on Vancouver Island on the West Coast of BC. And so I also am founder and lead instructor at Kickpoint Playbook, which is a new training course we'll be offering. The first course is called Analytics for Agencies. And one of the reasons why we created that course is because one of the things that I do at the agency at Kickpoint is I clean up other people's bad analytics. And so <laughs> I'm tired of doing this. I want to, yeah, I, I'm going to teach everyone else how to do it so I don't have to keep cleaning up other people's stuff. So that's where that came from. Yeah, yeah. And so that's been a ton of work to put together, but it's been really rewarding. Anyway, so as how I got into this field. So I've been working in the field since 2000. So this is my 23rd year working in digital marketing. And I have a degree in geography. I was originally going to work in river restoration and ecosystem restoration, which didn't happen. I ended up getting a job out of university in software. And then I became a technical writer. I became a trainer. And then I started dabbling in websites in 2000. And then when I got laid off from my job in 2001, 2002, I decided I'm just going to go for this full time. And then one of my very first clients said to me, why is my site not showing up on Google? And I said, I don't know. I'll get back to you. And it, I did some Googling and I learned about SEO, which was obviously extremely new at that point. And then I just found out I really liked SEO a lot more <laughs> than I liked making websites and I was better at it too. So I mostly did SEO for a long time. And then as I've been working in SEO for you know over a decade at that point, I thought, you know, one of the things that I really want to make sure that I'm showing is how to connect outcomes to the work that we're doing. How do we prove our value to clients? And of course, rank reports was always something that as an SEO, you would just show a rank report, but rankings don't make money. Traffic does, you know, actually having people convert does. And so that's something where I started to get more and more into analytics. And now that has basically taken over what I do. So I have this new deep experience in SEO and aged experience in building websites. If you need a table-based website, I can do that for you. But now it's mostly focused on analytics and strategy, helping companies, you know, do a better job reporting on their work. 
just listening to you now, I see a lot of similarities with my career as well. Mine is, you know, ne- like half as young, <laughs> but I started with websites myself, you know, dabbling into Flash websites in 2010 and Dreamweaver, if you remember yep, that's then. that's what I used too. Oh, yeah. Yep. I used Dreamweaver. Yep. But I learned about you around, I think that was in 2012. That was when I was really head first into, I didn't even know it was called digital marketing at the time because coming from Nigeria, it's a bit of an emerging market. So whatever happens in the West takes about a couple of years for it to get updated. Although today the gap has reduced. And also today's focus for me is also a lot on strategy and intelligence. And it's one of the hardest things to do. I mean, of course, this episode is not about that, but... I would like to explore your thoughts. I can call you a visionary given the amount of time you've been doing this. And I'd like to get your thoughts on where you see the marketing intelligence world, how far we've come, first of all, and where you see the future going for, you know, now we've got GA4 and, you know, everybody's like, okay, I think GA4 is making everybody to learn change management for you, you know, so... What do you see the future of marketing intelligence and looking at the last 20 years, you know, how do you feel about what has evolved? Yeah, I feel like actually one of the things that people misunderstand, especially about GA4, and and I think GA4 has really shone a light on this, is how little we can actually accurately track. Because I think that people would say, look at the new versus returning user reports in Universal Analytics and say, oh, well, this is obviously accurate, but it never was. And I think people were just taking it for granted that it was. But huge changes in the industry, like intelligent tracking prevention for Apple, was a massive sea change in analytics. And I don't think enough people really realized how much it was and how difficult it was going to make things like attribution reporting, which I know another one of your guests, Rand Fishkin, has talked about, you know, the lack of attribution, especially for some industries, it's extremely difficult because you have things like people using Safari, which has ITP intelligent tracking prevention. You have people using ad blockers, like, you know, it's kind of ironic that I use an ad blocker, but I totally do because I want to control what people track and you know, all these cookie notices and everything else that people have half the time, I would say they're not actually doing like you say no to cookies and you still get cookies anyway. So not set up properly mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. yeah. But all of these issues come together to realize that actually attribution and tracking is kind of a mess and it's not going to get any better as Google slowly works its way towards a cookie-less future. And while we say things like, you know, yeah, you'll still be able to track some stuff in analytics because that is a first party tool and, and there'll be methods to track it. The reality is that you will, but the amount of attribution data you're going to get is going to get less and less. So it's almost like things used to be better, you know, in the olden days. Like when first analytics first came out, we stopped using web trends and we were able to actually use analytics. I think we could track a ton more than we could now and we could trust it a lot more than we can now. And one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time doing is explaining to other marketers the limitations of what they have. Because I think that one of the things that we do a really bad job of is communicating to leadership the limitations of our measurement because we don't want to tell leadership, oh, we don't know, or we can't measure that, or you know, here's some data, but it's just like one-tenth of the total picture. And you could extrapolate that out, but I don't recommend it because of, you know, it's just, it seems a little bit like we're dealing with like, oh, I don't know, maybe this is working, maybe it's not, right? And people it's, are afraid of like exposure. Yeah. And it's, it's, you don't want to admit that you can't tell how things are going. So a lot of the metrics we've been working with clients on are things like looking at what we call efficiency rate, which is the idea of taking, you know, the number of impressions you have in total and dividing it by the number of conversions you have in total, just as like a global 
is this thing doing better or worse than it used to be type metric. It doesn't look at attribution. It just looks at input and outcomes. And that's it. And that's actually a decent metric to take a look at because it takes everything to consideration and doesn't worry about the limitations of measurement. But at the same time, you know, if somebody says, well, I'm giving you all this money for SEO or for PPC or whatever, why am I not seeing my phone ring or why am I not seeing, you know, like that's, it's a harder question to answer than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, efficiency rates. Is that the same as conversion rates or it, no. does it dip no, different something from that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's something we need to blog more about. I've been talking about it at conferences, but certainly I need to post something about it because it is just a really simple, you know, take the number of conversions divided by the number of impressions. Is that number going up or down? That's it. Just a real basic, are you being more efficient with your marketing is the idea behind it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I will stay tuned for that. And if you're listening, please do so as well. But why I love that is because there's something about me and maybe you that will not change. While counts are very important, averages are probably more valuable. And that is an average right there. Some people call it ratios. You know, I don't care. But at the end of the day, you know, working with averages just shows how well you can do better at stuff in general when it comes to marketing intelligence. Well, when it comes to, you know, this topic here, there is, you've had a privilege or you still do of working with a big enterprise companies and with marketing intelligence, there's a digital transformation aspect to it. Okay. With that also comes with culture. You know, again, feel free to use the GA for example here. Honestly, it would be nice for us to get your thoughts on, first of all, what the measurement workflow is or what Google Analytics back then when they had the academy used to call a measurement plan. So that way, if I can show that plan to management, we are able to manage their expectations. Feel free to also chime in on influence as well. Why do we need this? Why should we focus on this KPI? Why should we change our infrastructure? That's something else on the side. But I don't think many marketers have a measurement plan or a measurement sequence or outline or logistics at the very high level. All they just want to do is, oh, we need to get GA4. Why? What's the system? We need to get a dashboard. Like it's not as structured as I would like. And I know majority are facing that problem. So please help us, you know, shed more light on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some people sit down and they're like, I'm going to make a dashboard today. Well, what are you going to put on it? You know, oh, I don't know. It'll be sessions by channel. Well, why? You know, what's the point here, right? And then I'm going to put all these tables, but a lot of people don't like tables. I mean, marketing nerds like tables, but lots of people are not us and they don't like tables. So stop putting tables and everything. Anyway, I digress. I think one of the things we really push clients to do, and this is clients of all sizes. And I have to say too, that a lot of people might think, you know, if you're a small business, you think all these big companies, they have it figured out. They don't. They have exactly the same issues and sometimes they're almost worse. I feel like Tell big companies it. just continue to exist no matter what bad decisions they make because once you reach a certain size, you're just like this behemoth that can't be stopped. But small businesses too, sometimes a lot of them are a lot more nimble than the big businesses for sure. Anyway, so one of the things that we encourage all of our clients to do and we create this with them is a goal charter. And a goal charter is where we set forth the goals for the marketing project or the website or whatever it is we're working with them on or the analytics plan and say like, what is the point? Why are we here? <laughs> what, what are the outcomes of this? And 
we encourage them to set actual, you know, smart goals, right? You know, actually measurable, et cetera, the smart framework. And that's really hard. Just just getting to that point is really difficult and a lot of work. And I think part of it is this concern that once I set a goal, if it's an actual, you know, I'll get X number of conversions, then you have to hit that goal. And like, well, I don't have a plan to hit that goal. And I think that that's where it really falls down because it's like, well, why are you setting this goal if you have no idea how you're going to get there? And then that's where we work through the clients and say, all right, so you have a goal to sell, you know, a thousand memberships to your club or whatever it might be. So, you know, how are you going to do that? What is your current conversion rate? Oh, I don't know. Okay, so let's work on that. (laughs) What is your rate of like lead to actually closing it? What is your, so in that case, how many people are going to have to bring to the site? Does your budget support us bringing that number of people to the site? Assuming it's going to stay the same. Eventually, we're going to have diminishing returns. How are we going to plan for that, you know? And, and also getting clients to really focus on just what's important and really like pushing out the stuff that's just noise. And the goal charter really helps to focus on that because in the goal charter, we can say, well, I know that you're really stoked about this, but how is it going to move the needle on these specific goals? It's just a distraction. You know what? We'll think about it later. You're really laser focused on this particular goal right now. And because we can take the goal and break it down into those key performance indicators, KPIs, also OKRs is another way to phrase it as well. I can't remember what OKRs are. Yeah. Objectives on key results. Yeah. You can call it whichever you want, same kind of idea. And then from there, you can break it down into the metrics and say, so for this KPI, these are the metrics that we're going to have to track. And then when you create your report, it's actually quite simple because you say, here's our first goal, here's the KPIs, and here's the metrics I'm going to report on to see if we're making progress towards that KPI. That's the report. And keeping the report really simple and really focused, like in an ideal world, you would have a page, maybe a few pages for a report. And to be clear too, I want to talk about the difference between reporting and dashboards. Reporting is that laser focused on your goals type of report. You know, it's focused on, you know, are we going to get there? A dashboard is in the moment. What are the things that I might need to know that will need to change to course correct to get towards our goals? And on the dashboard is where you put things like, are we driving people from PPC to 404 pages accidentally? You know, are which page is doing well and which page is not doing well? The kinds of things where you'll make a decision that will change how you implement your reporting, you know, or how you implement your marketing. But the report is focused on those end outcomes and the dashboard, which you do not share with leadership, is to help you make decisions. You know, and you really got to consider the audience, you know, the leadership team is not going to care so much about the different click through rates from Google Search Console, you might, but they don't need to know that you're just introducing noise, it's going to confuse them, and then they'll get obsessed about the wrong thing, like bounce rate, you know, which we never should have reported on ever, but people love it, even though they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk more about that. So there are KPIs when it comes to structuring dimensions and metrics, you know, let's say we are decided to structure it now. We're not just going to jump into stuff. We're going to structure it. We're going to go through Dana's plan. There are what I call, and it could be named differently, product optimization metrics and process optimization metrics. So just like you said, stuff like bounce rate could be like a process optimization metrics, like Clark Johansson, someone I worked with, and I also spoke to on this podcast says, there are some KPIs, just like you said, that might be useful to you, CTR, impression share, you can go on and on, but not useful to the persons paying your bills. And the error that I think is more common, especially for those who are, you know, setting up tracking and designing dashboards is that they try to put these two into one, me included. And I know it's not ideal. I've been thinking heavily about it, 
but how do you think we better separate both? Okay. So do you think we should have this analytical ecosystem for internal work where we have tracking dashboards and all that are just talking about the backend stuff? And then we have another set of dashboards that record on the client side. And then we can show them what really matters to them. Might be even more scanty, but simplicity, just like you said, which I also agree with. So how have you seen that balance in terms of separating product optimization from process optimization? And how important are both? Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things we usually work with clients on is what does leadership actually care about? So when we're working with clients, we do what's called a discovery process where we ask them a whole bunch of questions about, depending upon what we're covering the discovery process, if it's like, let's say just analytics discovery, then one of the questions that we ask them, what questions have you been asked about marketing in the past? You know, tell us everything people have asked you. And also what things are you being, are there any specific metrics that are in your performance reviews? You know, <laughs> can we make sure that you show that you're doing a good job? Because I think one of the things on an agency side that they do a poor job of communicating is really connecting their work to the things that are going to matter to your client, who may not be the leadership of the organization, but how can you show that your client made a good decision by hiring your agency? And that's how you build a long-term relationship with the client. And if that client says, you know what, I know it's ridiculous, but one of my metrics is I have to make sure that this stays above a certain percentage. Great. We're going to slap that on the report. You know, like that's that's something that you're going to include in your report to leadership. It may be silly, but we can work on the silliness later, right? And just like, let's just do it for now because now is not the time to say to them, I know that balance rate isn't measuring what you wanted to measure. You know, look, I changed it today to this, whatever it might be, right? Like it's, we can explain that later, but for right now, let's just make the report with the stuff that you need. And then we will identify the things that we know that we want to change them from reporting on this to reporting on this, but that's a longer process. You can't just come in at the beginning of a relationship and change a client's entire perspective on how all this stuff works. And sometimes too, you know, agency side, if a client comes in and they're like, I'm really focused on rankings, we don't actually work with those clients because we know it's gonna be too hard to change their mind. And there are other agencies that do a great job of who will work with those kinds of clients. And there's necessarily a judgment call, it's just like, we're not the best fit. For that particular company. So yeah. that's also part of it too, is understanding your own strengths, speaking at it from the agency side and making sure that you're working with clients where you know you're going to have a good fit because the other thing too, there's nothing more frustrating and soul destroying and frankly, not good for your financial you know, margins, working with a client yeah. where you know it's not necessarily going to be a good situation. And in-house wise too, speaking to in-house marketers right now, you know, sometimes you might get into a new gig and you're like, this is going to be great. And then you realize over time that leadership is just like, not going to change their mind about the metrics that matter for you. You're constantly going to be fighting against that. And that is super frustrating. I've talked to so many marketers over the years who were like, I think one of the most horrifying stories I heard was after a MozCon and they said that their boss was making them Google their company name, like every 10 minutes and then reporting on where they showed up in the search results. Like that's, yeah, you, that, that, you that's start to change that mind, you know, like that's, that's such a waste of that's time. That's still a big problem. Yeah. That's still a big problem. And I'll, I'll let you finish, but I just wanted to say, it happens in display ads a lot. And Dana, you won't believe this. I have the chance to work with enterprise companies, with podcast marketing, podcast ads like Fang companies, who will still be asking for screenshots on display ads. And you want the outcome, right? Why are you so bothered about screenshots when you are getting, in my case, downloads from paid traffic? And these are downloads that align with the kind of audience that you want to listen, blah, blah, blah. 
but you continue to ask for screenshots. And, you know, we had agreed within ourselves that we will never, because screenshots are hard to get, right? And what I've worked DV360 programmatic, I've, I do Google Ads on a daily, and what they both say is that there's no way to do this except if you want to do a Photoshop screenshot. And I know some companies do that, but we will never do that. So I just wanted to make that rant, by the way, about why, <laughs> you know, you're the most con people, you know, searching their brands and, and all that nonsense, you know, adding to their click-through rates, negative click-through rates that will impact their ad rank. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think you raise a great point that, you know, people say, well, I want a screenshot. Well, so the question is, is you know, you can come back to them and be like, we don't do screenshots and this is why. But then I also want to know why they want a screenshot. So at some point, they must have worked with an agency that says you have to get the screenshot or else you don't know for sure that the ad was running and they could have just made up the results or whatever it might be, right? So it's like digging in past to the thing that they're asking for to figure out where this is coming from. Because I also think too that there's a lot of psychology in reporting in terms of thinking about like, why is this person asking for this? What are the things that have happened to them up to this point? You know, what kind of marketing trauma do they have that has led them to this point where they're asking for this thing that on the surface looks ridiculous because you don't have the history. But tell me about all the things that you've heard or like, like, just explain this to me. And I think too, it's sometimes if people are willing to explain this great, sometimes people might just get blustery and say, well, I don't know, you figure it out. You know, it's like, okay, well, this is not necessarily going to be a great relationship. Let's figure out what we're going to do about that. But a lot of times too, it's just people might have a misunderstanding, but they don't necessarily want to admit that they don't know or they have a misunderstanding or they've you know the world of marketing analytics is really opaque and there's a lot of you know frankly bs in our field the yep. the barrier for entry is a, someone with a laptop right like anyone can call themselves an expert just by pretending yeah. right and so there's a lot of crap out there and i think that when you actually deal with a company that isn't selling you crap it's almost worse because the people who do sell crap just are very confident they're like, yes, it's like this, or yeah, it's very black and white, right? It's like this, or it's like this. And then for companies who are telling you the truth, it's more gray. And I think that people really get uncomfortable with that. They're like, but I want those absolutes because that makes me comfortable. Well, there's no absolutes. And I think that if someone isn't used to working with uncertainty up to this point, it can be a really uncomfortable experience to get there. So that's where you kind of have to like choose which hill you're going to die on. You know, not every hill is an attractive hill to die on when it comes to this stuff. Think about where, where you want to start. And ideally, if you have a longer term relationship already sketch out with a client, think about, okay, so in three months, we're going to work on this. On six months, we're going to work on this. Don't try to get them to change their mind right away because it's not necessarily going to happen but start thinking about what you can do to get them to where you want them to be. Yeah, I and I'd like to add to, you know, incredible insights there. And I'll tell you why I can relate. When I sort of, you know, moved into performance marketing back in 2015, I decided to choose the highest, most difficult route. And aside from connecting the dots, Dots loves marketing as a brand, also prides itself in open and transparent marketing strategies, okay? However, there is a bit of a trick, and I think that might be useful to everyone listening. If you listen to what Dana said about um, looking at campaigns in phases, I personally think if you are able to communicate the right KPIs, the difficult KPIs to management, to business leaders, but you are communicating it as a frequency where they are somewhat tricked into... Um, accepting progress, 
better than accepting outcomes. So as you know, corporate guys is either you hit this target or you're fired or whatever that looks like. But when you are a marketer, you are a growth marketer, and you want to stick to the true value of delivering revenue without all the fluff and vanity metrics that happen, then you need to communicate more. It sounds a bit contradictory, but that's what I think works for me. Communicate more with stakeholders to show them progress. See, we are not there yet, but this is what I've done. This is working and this is not working. You know, for the past three years, I've started to impute negatives into that. Again, if you have an agency and you're dealing with your point of contact, that may be a bit of a tricky situation. But I think when you show transparency, but at a more frequent rate, you tend to trick leaders into believing the progress. That Oh, this is some progress is being made. They tend to give you more time that they wouldn't, you know, demand gen campaigns take up to six months, but startups will never wait for that. We understand that. But if you're able to use this strategy, then they can advise their board on progress and why progress is important. And you can then look back in six months or in a year and see, oh my God, look at how much revenue attribution has come from all this because we waited, because we ran this campaign well, because we honed in on the product market fit and so on and so forth. Is that something you think you agree with? Maybe on a more superior note, of course. Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word trick. I think it's more an education piece. Yeah, I get what you're saying, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the biggest things, too, though, is, is really figuring out like what has been said in the past that will help them get to where you want them to be. Because I think, and this is why we do the discovery process now, actually. Because when, you know, like most agencies, you start working and you're like, it's gonna be X number of dollars a month and it just goes on forever. But that isn't necessarily what all companies need because what they need changes over time, especially because a lot of what we do is we actually train in-house teams to do some of this stuff because it's not rocket science. And, you know, some of it would be more efficient and frankly cheaper if you handle, you know, this, this, and this. And some of it, like a technical audit, like the big changes only need to be done once and then you have monitoring going forward, for example. So it's really the type of work we do with a client isn't necessarily the same from month to month. And so because of that, it means that you can work with clients and say, our focus for the next three months is this. Then our focus for the next three months is this. And then they understand that they're sort of like themes for each quarter. And then you know that this is the outcome and this is where we expect to be. And particularly with, you know, demand gen SEO fields where you can't just turn on the tap. I mean, even with paid people think that you just turn on the ads and then the sales start to come the next day. Like, this is not how that works. <laughs> it's no. not, it still <laughs> takes time to set it up right. Like even when you turn it on, yeah, maybe you'll get a couple conversions that day. I remember once we were running a campaign for a convention center that was on, I think, wedding planning. And the day we turned on the campaign, I think the first person happened to convert and it showed a hundred percent conversion rate right there. We're like, quick, shut it off. Like <laughs> it's not gonna get any better than this, right? But it's just like, it's that idea of randomness. It's like that person who yeah. clicked happened to be the correct person who's gonna convert that day. You know, and there's also that element as well to tell clients, like, this is what you would expect. If the conversion rate is going to be 5%, that means that we could have 95 people come to the website and those 95 people won't convert, but then the next five will. And I think explaining things as well in that sort of like, how much data do you need in order to decide if it's doing well, especially with low volume clients is really critical to explain that too. Because I think too, that people are really bad at understanding stats and numbers. Not everyone has taken a stats class. The one I took was statistics for geographers. So it's, you know, it's great for things like overflow, not much for things like marketing stats, right? And so I think it's important for people to understand, you know, this is the expectation. We're not going to worry until we see this. 
you shouldn't worry until you see this. I liken it to when you're flying and there's a little bit of turbulence and you're like, oh, I don't know. If the flight attendants don't look worried, I'm not worried. When the flight attendants look worried, then you should be worried. You know, <laughs> it's the same thing for marketing is like, if you're not worried, you can show the client you're not worried, right? And then the client can understand when to be concerned or when not to be concerned. And so that way they're not operating from this place of like fear based in, you know, basically a lack of knowledge. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you some more questions around that, you know, why people mistake correlation for implication or some people use some other words and things like that but before then i would like to to also i would like us also explore something else and you know i typically usually say before marketing intelligence is market intelligence and i would like you to give us an overview of the competitive intelligence landscape companies like similar work has gone public i didn't know they were making so much money things like that you know a lot has happened in the last decade based on competitive intelligence and but what do you think about it in general? What do you think should be our attitude towards it as marketers in terms of, you know, how we allocate resources to competition versus building our own product market fit? And, you know, how do how should we look at this whole industry going forward and how it plays into our strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think... Again, when we do a discovery, we ask clients who are your competitors and what makes you different. And some people are quite bad at that. And that tells you a lot about a company as well. You know, how well have they differentiated themselves? It's a difficult thing to say we do this differently and this is why, because then there's that fear of, oh, I'm going to lose someone who doesn't want to go with me because I don't do this or I don't do that. Maybe I should be doing this and that because this competitor does. You don't know what that competitor is up to. You don't know if they're making good decisions or bad decisions. They could be totally tanking their business and you're just going to follow exactly. them right on down that hole by <laughs> making the same decisions they are. And if you do the same things to your competition, what truly differentiates you? as a company, you know, a different logo, a different name, is that it? You know, so that's something as well that I think companies really need to have those hard conversations with themselves and figure out what actually makes us different. But beyond that as well, with regards to specifically the competitive intelligence industry, I think it's, I don't think that they can track as much as a lot of people think that they can track just like analytics, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we can only track so much on websites, what do you think that we can track from data like text on, on that people's websites? Yeah, like we can barely track what's happening on people's websites when we have that level of access. How do you think we can track stuff when we don't have that level of access, right? So what I always tell clients is like, if you love these tools, make sure to put your own site in as if you were a competitor. And then you know the real data, you compare that. So if you use similar web, put your own company in there and then compare it to you. You know how much you spend on ads. You know how many visits you get to your website. You know what you're ranking for and see what's right and isn't right in that competitive intelligence tool. And then you know the level of error that is introduced by that tool. And then you can apply that level of error to your competition as well that's being reported by that tool. And sometimes it's not bad and sometimes it is really bad. And I think, especially when we're working with like local SEO clients, you know, where there's a lot of regionality, yeah, competitive intelligence tool is not going to do a great job of figuring out how a psychologist in Edmonton, you know, is doing compared to their competitors. They're going to look at better help, for example, and say, oh, wow, you know, this is all over the place and they're just this tiny little people, but they do great in their market. And I think there's also that aspect of it that is also missing is there's a lot of regionality in what you know, non like SaaS businesses, non-national businesses do. And these competitive intelligence tools just can't pick that up. And especially, you know, being in Canada, it's the competitive intelligence tools are really bad in anything outside of the American market as well. I mean, they're getting better, I think, but certainly it's not something where I would trust it in any way. 
And so that's where it's like doing keyword research. You know, okay, this keyword research tool says that there's 5,000 searches a month for this. Well, that's nice, but I'm not going to take that as a number. I'm going to take that as a trend. And this is something we really try to work with our clients. These numbers are not absolutes. They are trends. Are things up 5% or down 5%? Is this keyword 5% more likely to be searched or 5% less likely to be searched? Is your competitor 5% more likely to show up or 5% less likely, you know? Now, one thing that is great with competitive intelligence and what we do all the time is we will take a look at what a competitor is tracking in their analytics, because you can look at what anyone's tracking in their analytics. You don't need special access for that. There's great tools like AdSwerve. Um, oh, okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like uh, there's, yeah, yeah. A, there's a uh, app called Wapalizer. Yeah, uh, that's okay. one of them. We use AdSwerve Data Layer Inspector Plus for Chrome. And you can go on any website at all and you can see what they're tracking. So actually a really great site to try it out on is Sephora. They track everything. Like their data. So I want to talk to someone on their data team because they are out of control with the amount of stuff that they track. But it all seems very purposeful. And it seems like they really like know their customers deeply because, I mean, this is how they are so successful. They do a great job of tracking this stuff. But it's really interesting to go on competitors' websites and see what are they tracking, what are they not tracking, what is important to them in their reporting because they're making a special effort to track this thing. Or they're not doing anything special at all, which means that you know there's nothing fancy going on in their reporting. You know, and that's also an interesting competitive intelligence piece of information to know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I Many don't explore that aspect of, you know, using these kinds of plugins to see what people are tracking or the kind of apps that they have or things like that. SE Optima and some of the other tools out there. But what I also add is that, just like you said, you can only get so much, especially at this time. Because of the nature of competition, I don't see the market growing too well just because, you know, competition is just, a, you know, uh, there's competition and there's anti-competition. No matter how much technology we have, that human element will always be there. So that will always be a limiting factor to moving that forward. So 99% effort on your own brand, <laughs> on your own website. And yeah, I agree then on nuances. We are now in an age where brand awareness Especially in B2B is becoming, uh, you know, I used to say something that the forgotten stone is the head of the corner now when it comes to brand awareness campaigns or demand gen campaigns or whatever you get, people call it. And those kind of trying to quantify that is not as easy as people would think, let alone having that, you know, with competitive intelligence. So you make use of what you have, but make purposeful and transparent use of that. And that brings me to another challenge that we still face in this industry. And that is the single customer view. Google does not like Facebook. Facebook does not like LinkedIn. There is a lot of, you know, if you've worked with that, you've worked with maybe thousands of dashboard at this point, I think I've done uh, almost 120 in my career. And you tend to get all these issues with integrations you know, this, you have to pay to get an extra plugin. You have to export to BigQuery, blah, blah, blah. My question is, do you see a future of cheaper marketing intelligence integrations? I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. I don't think it's going to be perfect. But do you see a future where this will get better, whereby we can see end-to-end -end the lifetime of a particular customer segment and can market to them at any level in their buying journey? I think 
I mean, there's a difference you're talking about the individual in the segment. So, you know, if you're thinking about something like a, a customer data platform where you can track everything that this particular customer does, I think that that is getting easier for sure. And there's tools out there like some of our clients use Segment, others use Rudder Stack, which is looking actually quite promising and has a really nice GA4 integration. But I think that that's, again, with the size of the company, like what is actually going to make sense for you? Are you going to do anything with this data? Because <laughs> that's the question is like, just because you went to a webinar and you're like, this seems cool. Okay, but what are you going to do with it, right? As opposed to looking at a segment of customers. And with that segment, you really have to think to yourself, like, can I truly track these people? Th thinking about the things that I mentioned in the beginning about stuff like, can you actually track these people through their entire customer journey? The only way you can truly track someone in analytics from visit to visit and know for sure that you are is by using user ID. So if you don't have, and this is like a logged in user ID. So if you don't have logins on your website and you're not forcing people to log in almost immediately, then you're not gonna know <laughs> truly from visit to visit what people are doing. And it gets even more difficult when you are say a B2B company. So we work with some companies who you know sell a few leads you know, a month is their goal basically because of what they sell and the scale of it. So for those kinds of companies, it's increasingly difficult to tell like what is the one piece of information that brought in this customer because there's a whole team debating whether or not they're going to purchase this product, which means that you have all these different people visiting the website. You have them looking at all sorts of different things. And so in that case, what we're looking at are like behavior patterns. People who download this white paper are more likely to visit the pricing page. You know, people who look at this particular piece of product are more likely to come back and look at this page, you know, three times. People who looked at this are also more likely to show up at this webinar page or whatever it might be. And those kinds of behavior patterns are what we look at as opposed to saying, you know, this company bought our product and they went to this page and therefore this page is the winner and we should only have this page on our website. Like no one's going to do that. <laughs> you know. So I think that that's where it's a matter again of looking at those trends, not absolutes and thinking about the pieces of content or whatever it might be on your website that is really moving your business forward and what kind of stuff is just sort of there as you know, digital clutter and what could you possibly remove? Absolutely. And again, You've started off on the right foot because I would like to go on with best practices. And of course, thank you for sharing some very great tools, you know, a tiny bit of which I need to explore myself. So if you're listening, whether you're into the pause or rewind, it's up to you. But, you know, get those tools, but have a reason for using them. You know, you need to have your strategy in place and tactics and everything, and then see how one tool can have some sort of fit to help you achieve the kind of intelligence that we are trying to do. You've mentioned a couple of things around how to properly analyze marketing data and maybe how not to, but I, we've not really fleshed that out properly and I would like us to do it. Remember I you know, hinted on how people see correlation and you just gave a good example about that. But when it comes to A-B testing, for example, people make all kinds of conclusions that are wrong. People you know, you are aware of the analysis paralysis, as they call it, and things like that. So what are some of your best practices for analyzing marketing data in general? Feel free to tell us what we should be doing or what we should stop doing. I like the what we should stop doing because, you know, it's fun to be cynical. 
we'll stop thinking about bounce rate. So bounce rate, just I have a video on this as well on my website, but bounce rate in universal analytics was not measuring what you thought it was. People would think it's people who come to the website and then leave. But if you were only the, measuring the basics in universal analytics, it was actually, I could have come to your website. I could have spent 20 minutes reading a blog post. I could have signed up for your newsletter, but because your sign up form doesn't go to a thank you page and you weren't recording form submissions, I would still look like a bounced visit. You know, and people also didn't think about things like the session timeout after 30 minutes. If I left that tab open and I came back to it later, that would be a bounce visit, but I wasn't a bounce visit. And so I think people are focusing on metrics that don't mean what they think they mean. And then in GA4, bounce rate is the inverse of engagement rate. An engagement rate, an engaged bit is someone who spent at least 10 seconds by default, you can up that to 60 seconds, with your tab as the active tab, visited a second page or converted. And so that's a pretty low bar <laughs> for yeah, something to be considered an engaged visit, right? So yeah. I don't necessarily like looking at those broad sorts of metrics. I think instead you need to think about stuff like, you know, people viewing videos, people engaging with accordions, opening and closing them. What sections of content are people viewing? There's something that we've measured for, I think we came out with this in 2018 now called content consumption. And so this is something that runs, uh, we have a WordPress plugin, or you can run it through Tag Manager. And so when you load up a page in the site, it'll count the number of words in that piece of content and figure out how long it would take for you to read that content starts a timer. If you spend long enough on the page to read the content, it says you dwelled long enough. If you go to the bottom of the contents, you saw it all, then you scrolled. And if both are true, then the content was consumed. And when we get this going on clients' websites, they're often horrified at how little of content is actually consumed when you compare it to page views. Because we'll look at consumption as percentage of views of that page. And people are like, oh my God, no one's reading my stuff. Like, yeah, or they're dropping off here. And so that's something else we can record as well. We have a site abandoned metric we recorded in GA4 that looks at the exact scroll depth where they bailed from the website. And that is really helpful for us to say, like, did they even see the call to action? Did you even give them the opportunity to convert? Or did they see that like annoying pop-up that you have that you're like, this will help us convert better. And then they just decided screw it and they closed the website. You know, like those are the things that I want you to think about. I want you to stop looking at things like page views and I want you to look at user behavior instead because people are usually sitting on a gold mine of actual good customers are already coming to the website, but they aren't converting because you are doing a bad job of talking to them or a bad job of showing them what they actually you know, want to see. And so like, just work with what you have. Don't necessarily focus so much on like, is lead gen what you need if you have no one coming to the website or, you know, it's the wrong kind of client. It's a different question. If no one's coming to your website, yes, lead gen, of course. If you have a well-converting website already and you know that's great, you just need more people, yeah, lead gen. But if you have a bunch of people coming to your website already and you have like a 0.5 conversion rate, you got to work on your own stuff first. Like, <laughs> otherwise you're just like telling people to come by to an open house while your house is on fire, you know? Don't spend money sending people to a piece of crap. And I think that that's a really, again, a difficult decision to have is people like, but I spent all this money on this website. I'm sorry that you did it is bad. <laughs> so we got to fix it. And it's like, I'm not coming in here necessarily to say, we need to redo your website, because we do websites. And I don't want people to think we're just here to like sell our services. But at the same time, like, let's see. Please, how shameless blog. <laughs> like, but I think it's also, you know, sometimes a new website isn't necessarily the answer, because we also don't know what's wrong. We know something is wrong, but we don't know what is wrong. So a great example that we found out, we used a tool called Full Story on this client's website. And Full Story is a lot more expensive now, but Hotjar and other sites like this are 
comparable. But one of the things they couldn't, they weren't getting people converting from Facebook and they couldn't figure out why. And it turns out it was a software bug that if you put tickets, they were a symphony, if you put tickets in your cart, and then when you went to check out, if you tried to use Facebook for the SSO for checking out, it would clear your cart. And there was no code error being thrown. The developer had no idea this was happening. The only way we found it out was by watching screen recordings of what was happening. So sometimes it's like that level of detail to figure out what's going on. And the issue isn't like, oh, our Facebook campaigns are bad. The issue is that we pissed people off because we were dumping all the stuff out of their cart. And they were like, forget this. I don't need to go to the symphony that badly. And they would just decide not to come back or they would call the box office and try to purchase. But no one had called the box office and mentioned that they tried to purchase and that it didn't work because Facebook, because they didn't realize that's what the problem was. So I think those kinds of things are really important from a diagnostic perspective to be like, this is performing badly, what is going on, and then dive right in. Yeah, very great points. I'm not saying that to patronize you, Dana. Like I said, I've spoken about him, Clark Johansson, a mentor I respect a lot. He's here in Calgary, but he knows a lot about like revenue marketing and all these things that we talk about. And he also mentioned that you know, it's the level of detail, especially with stuff like hot jar, crazy egg and stuff like that. It made me look at a hundred screens. Anytime I need to do like screen recordings, I'm checking these things and it says, it's easy, man. Just fast forward it four times. <laughs> it's not, it's not that hard. <laughs> but we, you could even increase yours the more, but basically you want to look at as much data to form some sort of a trend or uh, some sort of, you know, this equals more times and we need to look into this even more. And having this kind of diagnostics will help you because you will never know what is going on. Look at what, you know, Dana spoke about in terms of like the quick sign on for Facebook and how that small thing, very irregular thing, that peculiar thing can spoil where you're tracking and throw things off and things like that. You know, and the other thing too, I mean, you raise a great point about looking at recordings. So if we didn't have the recordings already set up that would tell us that this one channel is performing below average, we wouldn't know to go in and look at this one specific thing. Because Hotjar, you know, you can get it to record everything by default. That is overwhelming. And you're not going to be able to make great decisions watching a thousand recordings, right? But if you can pull it down and say these 50 people struggled, why? And then watch those. That's going to be able to give you a lot more information. So think about setting up your reporting in a way that makes it easier for you to focus on specific segments that you can look at to diagnose very specific problems. Absolutely. Something else you mentioned, we didn't cover it that much, but I will say this here, is that it could be very frustrating. Business leaders trying to run campaigns, is it that they are behind on competition or they want to get into markets early, or if you are like B2C, you are trying to key into the season and the analytical digital ecosystem is not ready yet. Uh, I'm saying to you, if you are listening here, if you're a marketing or business leader, it's always worth it to wait. Honestly, I've been there and I've, this is the second time I'm sharing this story on this podcast, whereby we're developing an ad tech product for podcasting and we've been testing all kinds of things. Nothing is working. We had a projection of launching this in like, I don't know, a couple of months now is like over six months and it's very frustrating, but we've learned a lot along the way. This has never been done before from my knowledge. And because of that, we have the hope that if we ever be successful, we're going to have a sustainable impact on this product. And it's the same way with tracking and analytics and things like that. You need to allow the analysts to do their job and do all the testing that needs to be done. Make sure the whole consumer journey is captured before a campaign starts at all. Please, I will say this one more time. Do not start a campaign until your marketing intelligence is 
fully done, no half measure. It's perfect until it's as perfect as it can be based on what is possible. So I just wanted to add that in there. You know, that was, that's a very important point. And make sure, too, that you're tracking what you can actually track. Because yeah. I, I also find that people make a mistake. Often they think, oh, I can't track this. So I'm going to track like a thank you page. Track the form being submitted if it's a lead gen. Like, please don't mm-hmm. track the thank you page because yeah. people leave tabs open refresh. right now. How many tabs yeah. you got open? You know, and those yeah. page view metrics are not what you need. You need the actual form submit. And if you don't know how to do it, I mean, we have our course, but also just like Google it. There's lots of great resources out there that will show you how to set this up. And if you are working in the space and you don't know at least a tiny little bit of Google Tag Manager, make that your goal for the rest of this year to learn like a tiny little bit of Google Tag Manager, because especially in the paid space, I think that is something that is huge to know how to do this kind of stuff, at least to be able to communicate intelligently with the person who is setting up Google Tag Manager on what you need. Exactly. And I agree with that as well. Dana, this has been very insightful, maybe academic in some ways, but very entertaining too, with all the great stories that you've shared. And I personally will be taking my notes. If you are listening, I'm sure you've got your notes as well. Marketing intelligence is at the heart of, is like the grand idea of marketing. Like marketing cannot really live without it, even the nuanced part of marketing. So it's important for us to take these ideas to heart and be successful with performance marketing. So where can our business leaders find you you if they need help with what I call marketing digital transformation? (laughs) Yeah, so I would say I'm actually on LinkedIn the most. There's only one Dana D. Tommaso in the world. So (laughs) you just Google me, it'll come up. The other Dana D. Tommaso has hyphenated her last name. She got married. So there's just me left now. (laughs) Yeah, and we also have a course called Analytics for Agencies, as I mentioned, which is coming out. Well, as we're recording, this is coming out very soon. But by the time it's published, it should be out there in the world. And definitely that will be at kpplaybook.com. And we also have a newsletter that we send out every other week from kpplaybook.com that talks about the most important things that we're seeing happen in the world of analytics, SEO, PPC, et cetera. So I recommend signing up for that as well. And then you don't have to pay attention to Twitter because we're doing it for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all for today, guys. Uh, Please see more episodes at dotslovesmarketing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Marketing Leadership Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Till next episode, connect the dots. Thank you for listening to the Marketing Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. There will be links to any resources mentioned in today's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. If you're a business needing content promotion, podcast campaign production, or are looking to build effective B2B marketing strategies, Dots is here to offer you ultimate marketing leadership and expertise. Find out more at www.dotslovesmarketing.com.